Welcome to the Project Tempest podcast, where we talk with creators about their journeys, struggles, and inspirations. My name is CJ, and I'm delighted to be joined for the second time by the great S.T. Joshi. S.T. Joshi is an American writer, musician, critic, and award-winning scholar whose work has covered much weird and fantastic fiction, especially H.P. Lovecraft, Ambrose Bierce, Lord Dunsany, and associated writers. He has also expanded into areas such as atheism, weird poetry, race relations, and political discussion. For this episode, ST takes us on a tour of Lovecraft's influence and traditions. We had a few audio problems near the end, which I think we've mostly fixed, but just bear with us around about the hour mark. Thanks very much. Welcome, ST. Good to be here. <laughs> now, since the last time we talked, um, you've been involved in several really interesting sounding projects that are um, doing more to bring the the words and the life of H.P. Lovecraft out into the public. And we were talking about one thing that you might be involved in around his letters. Yeah, that's a fascinating project. Well, in the first place, uh, for the last, oh, 15 years, I've been editing the complete letters and annotating them in, in conjunction, I should add, with my, my my superlative colleague, David E. Schultz, uh, who lives in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Um, he really, in some ways, was the was the pioneer or the, the, the impetus behind getting the totality of Lovecraft's letters published. Now, we're talking about four and a half million words, a, a staggering amount of text. Um, we have published, I think, about 20-some volumes and two more to go, and we will complete the series. So that's one thing. That, that, that's an enormous task. I feel that's, frankly, one of the, one of the great contributions of my life, <laughs> to be honest, because it's, 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 it's unbelievable. Um, but there are other ways to get these Lovecraft letters out to people, uh, as opposed to just print. Uh, a, a colleague of mine named Ryan Grulick, uh, and I, who he is in the film industry, and we're doing a number of projects, but one of the projects we have just started is uh, recording a, a series of extracts from Lovecraft's letters. I read them uh, just the other day in a recording studio, and we will have some sort of, uh, you know, some images appropriate to the, to the context uh, or the subject of these letters, and we'll present it as like an hour-long movie or something like that. And I think that's a really good way of 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 energizing people into understanding what yeah. these letters really signify and how much they reveal about Lovecraft himself. I mean, Lovecraft is often taken as this you know, stiff, uh, you know, reserved New Englander. In some ways, he was in person. Although I'll tell you, when he be when he got to be friends with somebody, he could really open up. He was the life of the party mm -hmm. to to people he knew well. Uh, especially that so-called Calum Club in New York City, when uh, when he just he, he was the the, the grandmaster of, of, of ceremonies there. Uh, but in letters, uh, maybe because it's a somewhat indirect means of, of communication. I mean, you're not face to face with somebody. Uh, Lovecraft could just he 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 poured his heart out. I'll tell you, um, not just to friends and family, but sometimes to perfect strangers. They you know some young young fan would write to him saying, "Hey, you know, tell me about yourself," <laughs> and Lovecraft will write twenty pages back in response. It's 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 as, as you know as Fritz Leiber, uh, who corresponded with Lovecraft for the last year of his life, said, "It it was crazily generous." Uh, I I mean you know he was a supposedly professional writer. I mean Lovecraft really wasn't a professional in that sense of the term, but um, he just. He had to express himself. He had to communicate with people, and this is how he did it. 
That's so impressive. Do you, do you have a, a, a very rough sense of um, what his kind of daily word count would be? Because I'm, I'm just trying to compare it to my own experiences writing. Yeah, What's his output you on know, this? These four and a half million words constitute, frighteningly, a small proportion of all the letters that he must have written in his lifetime. I mean, some people have estimated 100,000 words. I think that's probably too high. But even if it was like 75,000 words, 75,000 letters, that would still be an incredible amount of, of correspondence. I mean, probably greater than any letter writer in the history of, of literature. Oh. You know, um, who knows, 20, 30 million words? I mean, it's it's just staggering to it's think about. Um, when, I, um, when I was growing up, the, the um, sort of standard bearer for just raw output was always Frank Richards, who was the English writer who wrote the Billy Bunter books. And it was simply because he was he he was writing um, multiple issues of a magazine every week, and and he was he was he, he was considered as the standard bearer of someone who just wrote a lot. But um, Lovecraft feels like he may have been having more meaningful communication with many people through this medium. Absolutely. I mean, I mean, I I have found that virtually every Lovecraft letter has something to reveal either about himself or about you know the general times in which they were living or or the other person uh i mean you can learn so much and they are every one of them is written with such impeccable uh style and panache and 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 grammatical purity i mean i have found a few instances where lovecraft habitually misspells a word it's funny the word accommodate he leaves out the second m universally <laughs> he never learned to spell accommodate correctly he never learned to spell portuguese connected he left you know g it's g u e s e he always left out that u uh whatever we all make that kind of mistakes but aside from these things like that his letters are so impeccably written and you can tell that they're all essentially first stress he doesn't go out revising letters i mean who does that uh it's too time consuming and the fact that he was able to express himself in such, you know, incredible uh, literal, literal perfection uh, in in documents that are basically first drafts, that's really the most amazing thing about him. Nice, and I, and as you said, there was um, there's there's always this idea of that that circle of influence that he had that that wasn't necessarily publicly visible during his lifetime, but clearly grew and deepened over over time. Um, are you seeing as you read through these letters this the 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 beginnings of that real tradition of influence that that he sparked? Oh, no doubt. I think the the you know the admiration and even in some cases the reverence with which Lovecraft was received by his colleagues is directly relevant to, to the communication that Lovecraft kept up with these people. Sometimes for as little as a year or even a few months, as in the case of Fritz Leiber, in other cases as many as you know, fifteen, twenty years. Um, uh, August Derleth, for example, he became Lovecraft's you know publisher, his, his you know biographer. I mean, you know, his defender for thirty or forty years. He never met Lovecraft. He only wrote to him over the course of eleven years, and they had they had a correspondence just about weekly. Uh, you know, four hundred letters back and forth uh, on each side. Um, you know, and, and even just through that, he gained such an incredible sense of yeah. closeness to Lovecraft. In fact, when he heard of Lovecraft's death, you ought to read the, what, what he wrote about it. He, he wrote in his journal, it just went out to, you know, a, a field or something and, I mean, break down and cry or anything like that, but he just 
pondered what a tragedy it was that this great man was no longer around. And that, you know, Fritz, uh, Robert Bloch, of course, wanted with him for four years um, uh, when he, from like the age of 16 to the age of 20 or thereabouts, young man. But, uh, you know, he said, first of all, he says, Lovecraft was my university. <laughs> Lovecraft, uh, Bloch didn't actually go to college, but he, he corresponded with Lovecraft for four years. It was kind of like being, being, being having a private tutor. You know, he learned so much from Lovecraft. But then he went on to say, you know, if I knew that Lovecraft was dying out there in, in Providence, Rhode Island in, in March of 1937, and remember Block was living in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, he said, I would have crawled on my hands and knees to be at his bedside. Again, never met him, but that's the kind of, yeah. of devotion Lovecraft would inspire just from letters. Oh, it's beautiful. And and even taking that as, as an example, you know, I'm I'm a 16-year-old boy um, out, out in Wisconsin. I... I reach out to this person that I've never met. I connect with them. On your reading of it, what's what's the kind of guidance or advice or connection or really just humanity that's in that correspondence that you read from Lovecraft? What's what's Lovecraft giving to these people through this correspondence? Well, especially, I mean, he he Lovecraft was you know great in tailoring his correspondence to the needs yeah. and interests of his of his uh, 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 you know uh, the writers, um, and that is that just shows his humanity and his sensitivity uh, to the people he was writing with. In case of Block, he was one of many young boys, almost all of them boys, a few, a few young women, not, not that many, but you know, boys who were trying to be writers, uh, wanted to get published in weird tales or some of these other magazines would send Lovecraft drafts of manuscripts. And let's be honest, some of them were very crude and, and blocks earlier stuff is, you know, it was really over the top and, and flamboyant. And, but Lovecraft, would be try to be as encouraging as he possibly could. I mean, he's not gonna you know slam this guy saying, "Oh, you're a terrible writer. You'll never mount anything." That, that that would anathema to him. He would never do that. He would say, "Look, there's some promise in this story, but why don't you try this and this and this?" Uh, you know, and and sometimes going into great detail, even with somebody like like August Derleth, who was uh, you know uh, also actually started writing when he was about 15, 16. Um, there was an instance where. Uh, <clears throat> Daryl sent him a story, and Lovecraft actually rewrote like a page and a half of the whole story. <laughs> you know, it's like maybe this is how you should do it. <laughs> and you know, it's it's again, as Liber says, crazily generous. I mean, you know, uh, the average professional writer, and he was a professional in in, in the strictest sense, uh, although he didn't like like to be, um, simply wouldn't have the time to do it. But Lovecraft made the time, and again, that's that's how you you establish these bonds of of, of friendship. Nice. And, and I think you can certainly imagine um, a lot of these, especially the younger people at, at the time, you know, prob probably sending out letters to, to a whole bunch of writers and often not getting a reply. And then this, this, this one person perhaps comes back and it's, it's not just an acknowledgement. It's not just, oh, yeah, thanks for the letter. It's let's, let's start a real correspondence here. I, I take you seriously as a person. It's a, That's right. I mean, toward the end of his life, Lovecraft says, yeah, you know, I have 97 regular correspondence. <laughs> this was, had, to do, had to do it by, 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 you know, writing letters and putting them in envelopes and putting a stamp on them, you know, and sending them out. I mean, it's lucky that Lovecraft didn't live today. He'd be bankrupt. Uh, although although he'd, he'd clearly be a convert to email because, you know, yeah, yeah. once you get an internet... I was going to ask about... The, the 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 raw mechanics of it because this does fascinate me if you if your output is that high with correspondence I mean literally 
where are you getting the stamps? On a daily basis, how are you getting your supplies? That's the thing. I mean, okay, in the first place, uh, when Lovecraft was living in New York, um, he, he was very good friends with a man named George Kirk. Uh, and I'll tell you something. Uh, George Kirk, uh, a bookseller, uh, uh, and, and, you know, he established the Chelsea Bookshop. Anyway, I'm still in touch with George Kirk's daughter. She's in her 80s, a great, great woman, lives out in Massachusetts now. Um, I'll tell you, she is, she can tell you. I don't think she ever met Lovecraft. Well, maybe she did, I, although I don't think so. Uh, <laughs> maybe, maybe, maybe as a baby, I, I have no idea. But, uh, <laughs> um, uh, you know, she can tell me great memories of her father who knew Lovecraft. You know, it's, it's, it's just amazing. But anyway, uh, Kirk uh, at one time moved his bookshop from one address to the, to the other. And so he had literally thousands of envelopes with the old address, which was now useless to him. So he just dumped them all on Lovecraft. I mean, Lovecraft literally had thousands of envelopes. And what he would do is cross off, you know, just, you know, do, do, cross off the uh, the uh, Kirk address and put his own address there uh, in the corner. Uh, and the funny thing is, he said, oh, this is going to last me a lifetime. Well, of course it didn't <laughs> because he wrote so many letters. <laughs> so then he says, oh, okay, so I had to get my own envelopes. And, but, he had been in such a habit of crossing off that corner that he did it even when the corner was blank. He couldn't help himself because it had become so automatic for him to cross off the uh, the the, uh, uh, the the old address. Um, so that's one thing, you know, getting paper. I mean, paper wasn't all that cheap for him. I mean, he got really thin paper, and you can tell because it's nowadays it's it's all kind of brown and uh, very very fragile. Uh, some of it, but the postage, yeah, that that mounted up. Uh, at that time, I believe U.S. domestic postage was three cents for a letter and, of course, a, a penny for a postcard, you know, the penny postcard. Um, the problem with the postcard is that Lovecraft, on his many trips to, you know, wherever, um, would buy these postcards from a stand, you know, from a store or something uh, because he wanted to tell people, oh, look, this is where I am and, you know, I'm having a good time here. But he would write so much on the postcard, he would actually creep into the part where you're supposed to write the address. <laughs> and every so often, the post office would either return the postcard to him or, or actually would require postage due. It's like, you, you've written the equivalent of a letter on a postcard and you're trying to get away with paying only a penny instead of three cents. So, so, so I think maybe the recipient actually had to pay the two extra cents to, to, to receive the postcard. H.P. Lovecraft's collect calls to his, to the world. That's that's wonderful. Um, that's that's fascinating. That right now you can be at 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 most two removes from Lovecraft and Lovecraft's correspondents and Lovecraft's friends, and so we're still very much um, um, in the shadow, if you like, of this enormous sphere of influence, this cone of influence that moves through time, and you see it. Um, I think in detail, as you said, through the correspondence, um, famously through many writers and filmmakers. Um, how, how would you express that that's that cone of influence that Lovecraft still has? How how has he helped shape that that entire tradition that people have touched on? Yeah, well, this is an enormous subject. I conveniently I wrote a book on one aspect of the subject. <laughs> uh, it's called "The Rise, Fall, and Rise of the Cthulhu Mythos." which yes. deals just with the literature, you know, uh, some of the, the, the more important uh, literary works that have been based upon Lovecraft. Um, the whole thing about film and TV and comic books, that's a whole other subject. I mean, I've, I've 
dabbled into that a little bit, but that's really not my field. Um, I, I know something about it, but uh, the, the literature is fascinating. Uh, clearly, uh, as I've already suggested, uh, this thing happened within Lovecraft's lifetime amongst his relatively close colleagues. Now, let's be clear about it. Lovecraft didn't say, oh, yeah, I've written all these stories and you should imitate them. No, no, of course, he wouldn't do that. Uh, he was a very humble man. He, he said, I, I'm, I'm just writing stories, but whether they mount anything or not, I don't know. Um, but canonically, Frank Belknap Long, a, a friend he had known since about 1920, uh, around 1927 or 28, uh, wrote a story, Eaters. Uh, and you can tell it, it was not only influenced by Lovecraft's ideas, it actually features Lovecraft and Long himself as characters. I mean, they are clearly, they are referred to as Frank and, and Howard. Uh, I guess that's a, that's a giveaway as to who, who they are. <laughs> and in fact, it's funny, Lovecraft in his correspondence um, to, with Long, you know, he, he, he Long told him, oh, I'm writing this story and I'm, I'm basically incorporating you as a character. And, and Lovecraft said, Make sure, make sure I'm lean. I'm, I'm not a fat guy anymore. He was actually became kind of fat during his New York period because his wife at the time, you know, Sonia, felt he was undernourished and started, you know, feeding him these huge sandwiches and things like that. But then when he when he was out of her influence and back in Providence, he he, he trimmed down and he felt his ideal weight. Get a load of this. He was five eleven and one hundred and forty pounds. That is Ooh. awfully thin. Ooh. Awfully, awfully thin. Um, uh, but he said that's 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 the weight I want to be. Whether he was just making a virtue of necessity, I don't know because he never had much money for food. And, uh, but anyway, no matter. Um, the Space Eater is, is an interesting story. I wouldn't say it's a great story by any stretch of the imagination, but it got published in Weird Tales in uh, sometime in 1928, I believe. But a, a year or so later, Frank Belknap Long wrote a much better story called The Hounds of Tindalos. And that is a really, really fine story that, that uh, expands upon some of Lovecraft's concepts, especially the concept of, of, of time and, 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 you know, uh, strange dimensions impinging upon our own. A really, uh, really uh, uh, a very fine, fine story. And Lovecraft then ends up adopting some of the conceptions in that story into his own work you know he draws references to Tindalos yeah. and things like that so there's a there's like a cross fertilization going on and this happened frequently with basically three or four of the important colleagues in Lovecraft's uh, own lifetime Clark Ashton Smith Robert E Howard Durleth certainly but I'll, I'll get into him a little bit more later um, and and you know then into the 30s the young Robert Block and even Fritz Leiber um, Henry Cutner to some small degree, uh, although Cutner Cutner again knew Lovecraft only for about a year before Lovecraft died, um, and these writers uh, basically, let's be honest, they basically created the Cluedo Mythos in the sense that they wrote these stories. You know, I wouldn't say they're imitating Lovecraft. That's 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 uh, unjust just to, 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 to these writers. Uh, you know, they weren't just imitators. Uh, they were using Lovecraft's ideas to express their own. Uh, vision, uh, but drawing upon Lovecraft's conceptions and sometimes you know name dropping and whatnot. Um, I think I think Smith actually did some of the best work um, in, in this regard um, because he incorporated Lovecraft's ideas into these evolving uh, realms that he was himself had created. You know, Hyperborea, Zothique, uh, these imaginary lands that that m many of his stories were set in, and then then he fused the Lovecraftian elements into those. Uh, Robert E. Howard in, in things like The Children of the Night and, and some other ones, uh, you know, pretty clearly uh, uh, use Lovecraft as an influence. 
Um, and when these stories got published in Weird Tales, um, it seemed as if, you know, to, to, your, to your average reader at the time, that they were drawing upon an actual body of myth that, that you know, very few people knew about, you know, because... How, how could, you know, because the, the readers of Weird Tales didn't know that these writers were in touch with each other, uh, so they, they naturally assumed, oh, yeah, there's some weird body of myth about Kulu and Yogg-Sothoth out there that I, 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 I've never heard of. But, uh, and in fact, there were letters written to the magazine, you know, that were published in the magazine saying, oh, can you, can you tell me the, the, the source of this material? I mean, is there a Necronomicon out there? Uh, this happened as early as 1930. Um, and, and Lovecraft, uh, you know, was amused by that. Um, uh, but he also expressed some sort of reservations saying, gee, I don't want to, I don't want to trick people into thinking that I'm drawing upon some real, real body of myth. So whenever somebody wrote to him personally, um, uh, he would always say, oh no, this is just a, a product of my imagination. But that is really how the Clue Mythos got going, uh, in the, in the thirties. And, um, obviously, as you say, we can get to the, the, the August the other side of it um, soon, but um, what's happening, as you said, that dialogue that that first generation has, where, where most of them know Lovecraft personally, one or another, but they, they're in active correspondence with him. There's something in that early generation that is, to me, qualitatively different from um, even 30 years later, where you have people who are... Um, following in what had become a tradition by that stage there's no tradition when you're just writing your your first few stories and putting them up and um drawing on your friends ideas as it were there's there's some difference between the two levels of of the tradition right absolutely uh i mean i think smith is a very interesting example of this um uh, famously he came up with the the toad god Zatogua in a story. Uh, and the funny thing is, though, he wrote this story called The Tale of Zatampra Zyros, which is set in, I think, the, the, the realm of Zothique. Sent it to Farnsworth Wright of Weird Tales. Farnsworth Wright rejected the story. <laughs> said, no, oh, no, no, I don't want this. Uh, but in the meantime, Smith had sent the story to Lovecraft and maybe to others, too, uh, to, to read. And Lovecraft, you know, waxed and ecstatic. He's like, wow, this is a great story. And so he immediately cited Zathogua in stories that he was writing at the yes, time yes, that, that, <laughs> and so it ended up that lovecraft in, in i think it was the whisper in darkness first got the name satagua in print uh in, in weird tales in august of 1931 and only a few months later did the smith story which actually started the whole satagua thing uh, get published and, and and this happened a couple times and and smith in in a letter to i think to august derleth or somebody says it seems that I am starting a mythology. Yeah. <laughs> Smith said, okay, you know, people are drawing upon me as well, uh, you know, as, as, as Lovecraft. So it, it, it was a, there was a lot of back and forth going on here. Um, you know, to some degree, it was just, just fun. I mean, just name dropping, and it was not all that serious. But in, in, in many of these cases, these writers were not just picking up names or, or, or you know, forbidden books or whatever. They were actually... Uh, using Lovecraft as a springboard for their own ideas and conceptions. And that, that is something that got lost along the way. And I, I'm sorry to say, I think it was Mr. Derleth who was responsible for that. Yes. And, and it's an interesting point, right? Like, like there, have, there have been lots of groups of writers uh, uh, across history who were friends, communicated, shared ideas with each other. Um, but there's something in that thing... You say, you know, when people first start reading these stories and they just assume that there's some real mythology behind it, 
and there's still that quality in it and and it's it's hard for me to define but um some powerful impulse that goes beyond just people who write kind of sharing some ideas and trying some stuff out there is something qualitatively different in in at at the root of all this that grabs people i think you know the clue mythos or at least whatever you want to call it certainly by the time lovecraft started writing you know seriously in 1926 that's when he wrote the call of blue he had come to the idea and i think it was a, a, a correct idea that previous weird fiction was basically played out you know i mean obviously you can still write stories about vampires or werewolves or ghosts or things like that but the, it was all old hat not because it'd been done a lot which which it had more specifically from lovecraft's point of view the development of science had reached such a stage that these conceptions are no longer usable even in fiction because they're so obviously false (laughs) you know you have to either you use them as some sort of you know elaborate metaphor or something like that but nobody can take them seriously i mean it's just not possible anymore and so lovecraft was looking around you know in the first decade of his career it's like how can i reorient basically the entire field of weird fiction, although he didn't put it that way. You know, how can I reorient my ideas such that they can stand up to scrutiny in the in the light of, of what we know about the universe today? And he came upon this Clulu mythos. Of course, remember, he never called it that. Uh, and in fact, whimsically later on referred to it as, uh, you know, Cluluism or Yogg-Sothothery or whatever. Uh, you know, he didn't really... I mean, he had some sense that he was coming up with some sort of pseudo-mythology, but... But, you know, he was basically writing stories uh, from a perspective of how can I express what I'm feeling and thinking in a way that can stand up uh, uh, in in the present day. Uh, Because, you know, Lovecraft was very well read in the sciences, very well read in contemporary philosophy. uh, And and he, you know, he knew that he couldn't go back to these old old ideas that that were, were, you know, basically antiquated. Uh, and so Lovecraft hit upon the idea of merging weird fiction with science fiction. Uh, science fiction itself was a fairly new genre in, in terms of its, uh, you know, uh, 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 as an established genre. It really canonically started with, with the establishment of Amazing Stories in 1926. Uh, although, of course, you had people like Jules Verne and H.G. Wells well before that. But um, Lovecraft drew upon science fictional conceptions uh, and made them a part of his weird fiction. And that is really the essence of the Clulu mythos, because the, the horrors of the Clulu mythos don't emerge from anything just on Earth, you know, uh, a haunted house or something like that. They emerge from the depths of the cosmos. Uh, and, 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 and Lovecraft envisioned these so-called gods or, or entities uh, as simply aliens from outer space who, who have come from, from, you know, the far reaches of the universe and... and you know, have these encounters with human beings and, and whatnot. Um, that first generation of mythos writers in, in Lovecraft's day, I think, seized upon that idea, also drew in elements of fantasy, isn't the work of Clark Ashton Smith, um, and and Fritz Leiber also. I mean, he, he was a budding young writer uh, in the in 30s. He wrote a, a short novel <clears throat> called Adept's Gambit uh, in, I'm not sure exactly when, 1935, 36, uh, he sent it to Lovecraft, and Lovecraft was interested to see that there were actual minuscule references to his conceptions, you know, Nihilathotep, uh, Clulu, whatnot, 
in that story, and he read the story. He wrote this enormous letter. I mean, it's like it's like a five thousand word letter, you know, criticizing the story. I mean, not not criticizing it as a, as a bad story. He thought it was actually it was a very good story, but writing a very detailed critique um, as to you know, you know how it could be made better because I think possibly. Um, Library had already sent it to Weird Tales and it got rejected, and so he was asking Lovecraft's opinion. Um, and actually, it's interesting. Lovecraft said, "You know, I'm flattered by your mentions of, of my conceptions, but the story might be better if you if you remove them." <laughs> and and Library did that. Many decades later, around 2010 or thereabouts, some version, maybe not necessarily the first version, but some previous version of Adept's Gambit finally surfaced. Uh, and we got a hold of the manuscript, and I did see these, you know, small references to Lovecraft. The story, otherwise, really doesn't have a lot of Lovecraftian uh, images in it. Um, but I did manage to get that original version, or that early version, published in, in 2014. Uh, Liber went on, uh, as you know, to become one of the great science fiction writers uh, of, of that golden age. And in other stories, he really does incorporate... Uh, 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 Lovecraftian elements into basically a, a sort of science fantasy, science fictional uh, realm. Things like uh, the sunken land uh, classically adapts the uh, in the Call of Cthulhu in some ways. Um, a bit of the dark world. That's another great story. And of course, then in, in the ni- in the nineteen seventies, I believe it was, he wrote this superb, uh, consciously Lovecraftian story called. Um, Oh man, what is the title of that story? Um, let me quickly check my book. Uh, it was it appeared in um, one of the, one of the great Lovecraftian anthologies of the time, "The Terror from the Depths." Yes, yes in, in in Tales of the Cthulhu Mythos, um, magnificent adaptation of, in some ways, "The Whisper in Darkness" and and, and "The Shadow of Rinsmith. Uh But really, it's Liber's own story. He just drew upon Lovecraftian elements to express his own ideas. Um, so you have the a lot of the Cthulhu mythos is a sort of intermingling of genres, drawing drawing upon weird fiction, science fiction, fantasy, uh, even some suspense, uh, crime, mystery in some ways. So it becomes a kind of, 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 of amalgam of genres that I think is can be very exciting. Nice. Um, just one thing I'd like to say for our listeners: um, one of the most enjoyable things to see is a man who can fact check himself by reaching to his right and grabbing his own authoritative book on a subject and checking it out. That's just magnificent, my friend. Um, so you have in the, in the, in the early genesis of, of, of all this, it's, it's, it's not a mythos yet. It's a conversation, a, a very lively, fluid, evolving thing um, driven by a, the, the, the very smart human impulse of a man looking at his time and saying, how can I express myself in the spirit of these times? And this whole thing of people jumping in and out, there are no real boundaries. People kind of argue and scrap at times, but it's this wonderful kind of growing amorphous fluid conversation. And then to me, at least um, something happens and that something is probably named Derleth and 30 to 40 years later, or within a period of time, we have something that has shifted from that to something that literally gets called a mythos. And it's a possibly a very different thing. Yeah, I mean, look, all, all respect to August Derleth for, for, you know, getting, gathering up Lovecraft stories, publishing them through Arkham House, um, you know, becoming Lovecraft's champion and defender for the next 30 years. Um, so that's all to the good, but uh, there, there, there are problems with, with how he um, envisioned uh, the mythos in his own mind. 
as early as 1931, he wrote a story called The Return of Hastur, uh, sent it to Lovecraft, and, and you know, Lovecraft, always polite, and never never wants to, you know, trash somebody, especially some, some, some friend of his, you know, uh, a colleague, shall we say, express some reservations about the story. <laughs> And and we we don't have that draft, although I mean how how different it is from the public published draft we don't know. But um, basically, what Derleth did was a he totally misunderstood the basic concept of the mythos, and b he made it too systematized. Let me explain that second point first. As Lovecraft was writing these stories one after the other, Call of Cthulhu, Colorado Space, Donachar, etc. It is clear he had no plan uh, of, of how he wanted to, to develop this series. Um, and he didn't even consider it as a series. I mean, it was just, he just was writing stories, many of whom built upon the other, to be sure. Um, but we, we don't have any sort of outline saying, oh, this is my idea of the of this mythos, mm-hmm. and I'm going to do this, that, and the other thing. Um, and in fact, he never felt obligated to to. Uh, retain, you know, elements in the same way from one story to the next, and and that drove some people crazy. It still drives some people crazy because it's, oh, it's he's changed his ideas. But yes, that's his prerogative as an author. I'm sorry to say it, but that's the way it is. <laughs> you know, this is not set in stone, and he didn't want it to be set in stone. But so he did leave the open the possibility of himself or others expanding or, or, or elaborating upon these conceptions. Uh, you know, because it was open-ended. I mean, in that sense, what, what, is, what is the term? The shared world universe? Uh, whatever. I mean, obviously, that's uh, that's a conception that came way later, but that's basically, this is the basic idea. Um, and, of course, as I say, he never encouraged people to write in his idiom. Why would he? He wanted people to write in their own idiom. Uh, but he never discouraged them either. I mean, you know, he felt it flattering that, that they would use some of these ideas in their own work. Um, what Derleth did was he wanted to systematize. And and what happens is in story after story, they become sort of, um, you know, what is the term? Um, everything gets mapped out too systematically, too, too dried. Um, and that's absolutely the opposite of what Lovecraft was was believing. I mean, he, you know, what is the first sentence of his great essay, Supernatural Heart Literature? The oldest and strongest emotion of mankind is fear, and the oldest and strongest kind of fear is fear of the unknown. <laughs> Things have to be left unknown to a certain degree in a weird story, otherwise it's not weird, right? It's something else. It's maybe crime, suspense, science fiction, whatnot, but it's not weird. You have to leave open that that uh, that element of mystery and 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 uh, you know imprecision, if you want to call it that. For whatever reason, Darla didn't feel like doing that. He felt that that he wanted to say this is the Clue of Mythos. This is this is how it is. Uh, and and to compound that error <laughs> was the other error that I mentioned that he didn't understand what the mythos was really all about. Even though he was corresponding with Lovecraft for eleven years, yeah. you know, and he knew Lovecraft's attitudes, he knew Lovecraft was an atheist, he knew Lovecraft was a materialist, he knew Lovecraft scorned uh, religion, especially Christianity, because it, it was just false. Let's be honest; it is a false religion. All religions are false from his perspective. Um, but Derleth, a practicing Catholic, couldn't acknowledge that, and so when he uh, took up the mythos conveniently after Lovecraft's death. Um, 
he basically <laughs> shoehorned the mythos to, to make it coincide with his Christian worldview. He established an entire set of other entities called the Elder Gods, who somehow are protecting human beings from the evil machinations of the Old Ones. There are no other gods in Lovecraft. The, you know, in Lovecraft's view, we are helpless victims of these old ones. Um, that is the whole point. That is how Lovecraft conveys his cosmic perspective that human beings don't matter in a in a in an infinite universe. Um, it is a vision that Durlitz simply he couldn't accept it. He just it was so contrary to his own worldview. I understand that. That's that's just the way it is. Um, so I don't blame Durlitz so much for reconfiguring the mythos in this way. I mean, that's that's his prerogative as an author. What I do criticize him for is for claiming that this was Lovecraft's perspective. Yeah. That in essay after essay, or, you know, introduction to, to Lovecraft's stories, he says, this is the Clulo mythos. Lovecraft had these elder gods. Lovecraft had these things. He didn't. It was it was a, you know, that is really where Derlish needs to be criticized, because as Lovecraft's publisher and basically as his most prominent, you know, defender, Durlitz's views were accepted by everybody. And now that's their own fault. I mean, critics and, and readers should have been a little more careful in, in understanding that this is not what Lovecraft was about. But but that was hard to do in the 30s and 40s and 50s. I mean, it was just you know, because the, the, the evidence wasn't out there um, of that, that showed where Lovecraft was coming from philosophically. And ironically, Durlitz himself laid the seeds for the downfall of his own conception of the mythos by publishing Lovecraft's letters. And that, I'll tell you, whatever you may think of Derleth, if he had done nothing but that, he would deserve to be remembered. You know, he published the first yes. three volumes of Selected Letters. You know, it is a project that he, both he and Donald Wandry, who, you know, was his uh, co-founder of Arkham House, Wandry really was the spearhead behind the publication of letters because he knew from corresponding with Lovecraft for at least 10 years uh, and, and meeting him several times that, that these letters were pure gold. They have to get out there. Wandry was insistent that we we publish Lovecraft's letters. It took it forever, for a whole lot of reasons we don't need to go into. But but finally, by the '60s, they were ready to publish. You know, the, the series and it started coming out. The first three volumes came out it, just within Durlith's lifetime. Uh, after Durlith died, the last two volumes came out, and they painted a portrait of of, Dur of Lovecraft that people simply didn't know before. And that's where his views on, on, on atheism and religion and, and, and philosophy all came out. Um, and so, all you know, basically the, all the, the mythos writing from the late 30s up to about 1971 was corrupted by Durlitz's influence. Now, by chance, some stories happened to be pretty good stories all apart from that, um, uh, but they were few. Um, and... and only after 1971 and, and even well beyond that yeah. did we finally get back to the to the origin of the mythos the the root conceptions that Lovecraft had um, in what he what he wanted this mythos to be about it's fascinating to hear it and, and I know it's been commented on before but it it anticipates so much of later fandom and internet culture in the sense of um, the the obsession with mapping everything out, the obsession with the lists and the articulation and the exposition and the enumeration, and amongst that, people getting very tribal about trying to claim legitimacy from it. 
and it's and it's it's so far ahead of its time in that sense not in a great sense but you very much see those patterns oh absolutely i mean the the love uh, the the fantasy or, or weird fiction fan community had started as early as the 1930s uh, it, with the fantasy fan, the classic uh, magazine from from 1933 to 35, and even there, you had a few little articles uh, about not necessarily the mythos directly, but you know, somebody there was a brief little squib, you know, like a paragraph uh, that said the title was "Startling Fact." The startling fact was that the Necronomicon doesn't really exist, <laughs> because obviously a lot of people thought it was a real book. I mean, people would go into libraries saying, "Can you give me a copy of the Necronomicon? It must you must have it somewhere." <laughs> but no, the startling fact is that it's from Lovecraft's imagination. Um, and as early as the 1940s, when another uh, Lovecraft-oriented magazine called uh, 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 the Acolyte uh, began publication published by a number of Lovecraft's colleagues, whether uh, Dwayne Rimmel and, and Robert Barlow was involved, uh, a couple of other people as well. Um, they had article after article about about the mythos. Uh, the editor, Francis T. Laney, would compile a, a, a mythos glossary or something like that uh, uh, that was published actually in the second Arkham House book, Beyond the Wall of Sleep. Um, so even then, the, the charting of the mythos and, and the, you know, the, the specifying what should never have been specified uh, had already begun. And of course, as I say, Durlith was the spearhead behind that as well. Absolutely. And, and then um, moving, moving past the early 70s, when, as you say, there's perhaps a richer story tradition available. And speaking of writers with powerful worldviews who know how to not open every door... What happens when someone like Stephen King um, moves into parts of, of of this emerging tradition? Yeah, well, let me let me just backtrack just a little bit. Okay, nineteen sixties was an interesting time. Uh, the fifties were actually very bad for weird fiction as such because the pulp magazines pretty much have died. Died. Weird Tales finally bit the dust in nineteen fifty four. Um, you know, paperbacks were coming in, but weird fiction didn't flourish in that medium for, for whatever reason. Um, science fiction did, mystery fiction did, of course. We had lots and lots of uh, paperbacks. And so the writers of, of, of weird fiction, like Block and, and Liber and, and Richard Matheson, for example, all gravitated toward either science fiction or, or crime mystery fiction. So, and Arkham House was really struggling in the 50s. In the 60s, things began to change because film adaptation you know the first couple film adaptations of, of lovecraft stories began and that you know the royalties from that uh, those film adaptations helped arkham house kind of get back on its feet they republished lovecraft's fiction that got out there again um and so you had two very interesting british writers by the name of ramsey campbell and brian lumley uh, a study in contrast if you will um mr campbell I'll tell you if if he is not the greatest writer of weird fiction ever. I don't I don't know who is. I mean, anyway, I could go on and on about him. But uh, Campbell's first book, of course, was *The Inhabitant of the Lake* and *Less Welcome Tenants*. I'll, I'll mention that specific title because that was the title was botched. <laughs> Lovecraft, uh, sorry, Campbell wanted the title to be something like *The Inhabitant of the Lake* and other other unwelcome tenants. Uh, but the, the the guy who was doing the dust jacket messed it up, and, and Durlis didn't have the money to say, "Oh, sorry, you do do it again." Sorry, no, he he was stuck with it. But anyway, no matter. Remember that book came out was Campbell was um, eighteen, 
Yes, in 1964. Mm-hmm. And Campbell had actually written those stories basically when he was like 15 or 16. He first got in touch with Durleth in 1961 when he was all of 15 years old. And Durleth didn't know that immediately. Uh, he thought it was just some guy in England writing these stories. He said, hey, you know, they're they're pretty good, a little crude, but, uh, you know, there's some promise. And within a few months, uh, Durleth already said, yeah, I'm going to publish a book of these things. And he, I'm sure this 15, 16-year-old kid just <laughs> fell off his chair, you know, sitting up there in Liverpool. Um, let's be honest. That book is indeed kind of kind of primitive. Uh, I mean, you know, I mean, what do you expect from 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 you know, work that young? I mean, you have to be you know you have to be a Shelley to write you know great work at that age. Um, but even that book has the nucleus of Campbell's originality in it. Some of the later stories you can see he's moving away from direct pastiche of Lovecraft and trying to express his own ideas, and and, and that just went on in his next volume. Um, Demons by Daylight, my God, that 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 is such a seminal book in our field. Uh, in 1973, should have come out even earlier, but Durlow's death delayed that book for a couple of years. Um, and you had stories by Campbell, things like uh, Cold Print and the Franklin Paragraphs. That that yes, are certainly Lovecraftian in in some of their uh, conceptions. You know, the Forbidden Book theme, particularly, but. They are Campbellian in every sense of the term. I mean, he by by that time already, as a as a in his late teen years or in his twenties, he had found his voice, and he was expressing himself, still through the Lovecraftian idiom to be sure, but expressing his own ideas on 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 his own society and 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 life at that time. Mister K- Mister Lumley. <laughs> Did not seem to make that transition, by which I mean uh, the stories he wrote. He was an older man. He, he was born in 1937, actually, a few months after Lovecraft's death. Uh, seemed to be content just writing pastiche after pastiche after pastiche. And unfortunately, he never latched on to the fact that he was writing pastiches of Durlitz instead of Lovecraft. <laughs> uh, and uh, I, I'm sorry to say this, but I don't think Mr. Lumley was a very good writer to begin with. Um, and uh, whatever. Uh, so it's understandable, of course. Durleth published a bunch of his books early on, and then and that continued after after Durleth's death. Um, but but yeah, uh, whatever. Um, the 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 tide began to turn in 1971, not just with Durleth's death, but actually in 72 there was a magazine, a kind of a yeah a single issue magazine, just called HPL, published in in the United States here. There was a one-page, literally one-page article in that magazine by Richard L. Tierney called The Durleth Mythos. <laughs> one page in which he outlined how much Derleth had gotten wrong. Like, we have been misunderstanding Lovecraft for two or three generations. We got to go back to the source here. Got to, you know, clear away all this... Uh, uh, detritus that, that Durlitz put on and get back to the core notions of Lovecraft. And other scholars since then, uh, you know, Dirk Mosig and, and myself, kind of kind of ran with that and said, you, look, you know, yeah, let's 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 get to the essence of Lovecraft, cosmicism, atheism, uh, you know, uh, fusion of, of weird fiction and science fiction, um, things like this. This is what Lovecraft is really all about. And I, I'm hopeful that this intellectual trend in scholarship eventually kind of rubbed off uh, on on the literary community and 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 therefore you saw people not just writing 
bare imitations of Lovecraft, not just trying to come up with some new god or new forbidden book. I mean, how, how childish is that? Uh, but actually, again, using Lovecraft as stepping stones or, or as inspiration for uh, something that they they themselves have to say. That's that's what it is. You know, you have to go back to Mr. Samuel Johnson, who says no writer ever became great by imitation. Um, you know, and Lovecraft knew that as well as anybody, uh, because he himself had felt that he had been unduly influenced by either Poe or Lord Dunsany or Arthur Mack. And, and it took him years to assimilate those influences and start writing Lovecraftian work as opposed to mere mere pastiche. And he was always encouraging other people uh, to do the same. Um, but eventually, I think things, people did catch on. And, and now you have some really vibrant mythos writing. I'll tell you, I, I say that because when I first wrote this book uh, that I just keep mentioning, I actually called it The Rise and Fall of the Cluedo Mythos because I felt yeah. that, yes, Lovecraft had done some great work, some of his colleagues had done some really good work, but then Daryl came along and everything went bad. But even in that book, which went up to about the year 2005 or thereabouts, I began noticing, you know, this later mythos writing is actually pretty good. I mean, there's a lot yeah. of bad stuff out there. I mean, of course there is. There, there always is in, in whatever field you are. But there were some writers who were doing really good stuff. And that's why in a second edition I said, it's no, it's the rise, fall and rise of the Kula Mythos, because let's let's give credit where credit is due. Some writers like, you know, Caitlin Kiernan and Jonathan Thomas and, yeah. and, and Donald Tyson are doing really outstanding work and they, they deserve credit for that. Are there, are there particular stories or moments or, or other writers that stand out to you across that period? Well, again, there's so many. Um, Well, okay. Um, let, let's choose Donald Tyson. Uh, he's a shall, let's just say he's an eccentric individual. <laughs> we won't go into that. Uh, he, he's fine with that. He's uh, uh, he's an, he's an occultist. Let's just say that much, and, and that's fine, you know. But he he understands Lovecraft. He knew where he knows where Lovecraft is coming from. He's he's a writer in Canada. Uh, I think lives in the Halifax area. And I'll tell you, I first got onto him when I read this novel called Al Hazred. Well, Hazra, I think the subtitle of the yes. author of the Necronomicon. This novel is 600 pages, but you'd never know it. It is one of the greatest reads that I've ever had. I, I hope to read it again someday. It is basically an historical novel about Abdul al-Hazred in, in uh, Damascus in the 8th century and how he, you know, whatever, does all this sort of stuff. Uh, obviously, there are elements of the supernatural in there. Uh, it is one of the most compelling compelling historical weird novels uh, that I have ever read. And I said, wow, this guy is really good. Um, uh, my, my own pupil, Jonathan Thomas, I wouldn't even say he's a pupil anymore. I mean, he's uh, he stood on his own feet for years. Um, he started sending me stories in the, in the late 2000s, like 2007, 2008. Um, and I said, wow, this is good stuff. Now, he doesn't write exclusively in the Lovecraftian idiom, but he does enough. Uh, that that uh, you know he, he deserves credit for that. Uh, it is it is no accident that he actually is a native of the state of Rhode Island and lives right now in Providence, Rhode Island. Well, lucky lucky man. Um, so he's around the, the the Lovecraftian aura all the time. Uh, he wrote a story called Tempting Providence, which again I thought it's, it's it involves Lovecraft as a character too, which is also something that it, that it's a very interesting phenomenon that, that that has happened. We can talk about that later. Um, so 
people started sending me these stories. Uh, I thought, oh, these are really good stories. Um, and I, so I said, on the basis of this, I myself, uh, you know, began compiling my anthologies called Black Wings. Uh, and I like to think that I've published a, a lot of good stuff in them. That first Black Wings story uh, anthology has, I think, three incredible pieces. Three, well, a number of incredible pieces. Jonathan Thomas, Attempting Providence. Uh, Laird Barron's uh, story, The yes. Broadsword, yeah. I think is the best story he's ever written. I mean, I, I, I say that immodestly. I mean, but uh, he didn't write it specifically for me, but uh, I mean, I just ended up publishing the story. Um a great, great story. That title refers to a hotel, I think, in the Seattle area right here where I am. Uh, fictional, of course. Uh, unbelievable story. Willem Pugmire, I knew him well. H W H Pugmire uh, died a couple of years ago. Wrote a story called Inhabitants of Wraithwood that, again, is just... What an incredible story. Ba very loosely based, maybe, upon Pickman's model, perhaps, but really, it's, it's his own story, just using Lovecraft yeah. as a... Uh, as, a, as a foundation Caitlin Kiernan wrote an incredible story also in that anthology Caitlin I'll tell you she has gone on to write some some amazing amazing work um, uh, a lot of people praise her novel um, uh, what is that novel it's sitting here over here in my, on my shelf um, uh, uh, anyway um, uh, but in my estimation one of her best novels is called The Red Tree which is again set in Rhode Island she was living in Rhode Island at that time um, and so she was all around the Lovecraftian influence. And again, there is nothing explicitly Lovecraftian about that about that novel, but it's full of Lovecraft, really speaking, um, if if you know what to look for. Um, and 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 you know that's just the best way of doing things. You re remain true to yourself, but you're drawing upon uh, this this great source of inspiration. And and as if if you can in, you know incorporate that into your own vision, then you've really done something. Nice, and and it's it nicely anticipates. I was I, I was going to ask you know if you were if you were giving advice to someone um, who who was wanting to make things in whatever form, um, what what kind of dialogue or engagement they might have with someone like Lovecraft, and I, and I think you've captured it perfectly, right? Um, and I and I I agree that almost all of the most interesting things that I've encountered across the whole tradition, it's always someone bringing a really distinct sensibility of their own, and um joining um um talking doing something with the existing tradition but not just jumping in and kind of doing service it's more this 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 rubbing well i'll tell seems you to work so well. okay let's go back to campbell when 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 campbell sent these very early stories he'd written as a teenager to derleth they were actually set in new england in the 1920s or 30s Campbell did not know anything about New England, <laughs> obviously, and he didn't live in the 20s or 30s, obviously. Um, and Durleth, you know, and, and, and good for him. He said, "Ramsey, these are interesting stories, but they're not true to life. You know, they don't ring true because you don't know what you're writing about. <laughs> Why don't you set your stories in England? <laughs> you're a native Englishman." You live there. You know about England. You don't know about America. And, and Campbell, it's like a light bulb went off. You know? It's like, yeah. oh, what a brilliant idea. And to this day, Campbell, you know, says, in some ways, I owe my own liter my whole literary career to Derleth and that one suggestion that he made of writing what I know. Now, let's be honest. Every writer probably, you know, 
goes through an apprentice period where they maybe draw upon yeah. you know other writers, but that's and that's fine. Lovecraft did that, as, as I just mentioned. But if you're going to be a writer of any substance, you have to move beyond that. And somehow, I mean, and I don't know the trick to it, but somehow you incorporate the, the, what you've learned from that writer into your own vision. Um, and in and and I'll tell you. Um, it may be easier for older writers to do that. Let's take the example of Colin Wilson. Nice. Very interesting writer. I disagree with almost everything he's written in terms of his philosophy. He was, he was, you know, he called himself a philosopher. I think he was just a windbag, but no matter, <laughs> let that pass. <laughs> he was a very bright guy, let's be honest. You know, there's no question about it. Um, um, he, <laughs> back in 1961, he wrote a book called The Strength to Dream, uh, the subtitle Literature and the Imagination. Oh my God! The first, you know, half dozen pages were about Lovecraft, and man, oh man, does he does he really eviscerate Lovecraft? Not just as a bad writer, but as some sort of he called him sick. You know, he, he thought he was Lovecraft like like an insane person or something. You know, and he rejected reality, whatever that's supposed to mean. Uh, and and you know, it's like God, what, whatever. It's because I think Luff, he, Wilson believed Lovecraft to be this profound pessimist, which he wasn't, uh, and and yeah. you know whereas Wilson is this great optimist who thinks that the human race is on the on the verge of uh, you know uh, transforming itself and becoming I don't know what. <laughs> okay, fine. Uh, Durleth read this and said, Wilson. <laughs> To be blunt, I mean, he didn't say this literally. Probably, he said, "You're full of shit. <laughs> you don't know what you're talking about." <laughs> and he and Will and, and Durleth said, "I dare you to write a Lovecraftian story of your own." Uh, and Durleth did. I mean, Wilson did. Um, he wrote the Mind Parasites, and I'll tell you, that is an incredible piece of work. It really is. Um, it, it is. Yeah, I mean. There is so much Lovecraft in there, but there's so much of Wilson also. It's it's yeah. Wilson taking in Lovecraftian conceptions and reading them through his own uh, philosophical and aesthetic vision, and it's a fascinating, fascinating amalgam. Uh, it's and it's all one of the one of the novels where, quite frankly, everything happens in people's minds. There's almost nothing, no physical action. It's it's, it's amazing how he managed to pull that off, but whatever. So he did. You know, it, the novel came out in England first, 1967, and then Durleth published it in, in, through Ockham House in 1968. Um, and Durleth encouraged Wilson to write more stuff, and he wrote several other pieces. You know, there's a long novella called The Return of the Loigor that Durleth published in Tales of the Clue Mythos. Oh, fine, fine piece of work. And then Wilson went on to write a couple more novels, sort of, you know, um, following up on The Mind Parasites, The Philosopher's Stone and... Um, yeah, the Space Vampires. I think Space Vampires ultimately was made into a film called Life Force. Isn't that right? Yes. Yeah. Which I'm embarrassed to say I have not seen Life Force. And I, so I don't know if that film has any Lovecraftian resonance, would you say? A, a, a little yeah. bit. It's 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 an interesting and unusual piece. Yeah. But yeah. By that time, I think Wilson had kind of, you know, the Lovecraftian influence was quite a bit more remote uh, in, in that novel or, uh, than in this in the predecessor. And yet the funny thing is, Wilson basically to the end of his life felt the Lovecraft was a bad writer <laughs> but he had some interesting ideas that, that Wilson wanted to sort of uh, use and, and, and make into his own so um, that's somehow what you have to do um, and, and the thing with, with somebody like Lovecraft whose work is very uh, meticulous in terms of its 
textual detail, it's so easy to get caught up with the names and the place names and the, the gods and things like that. It's hard to understand that those are mere symbols. They're, they're like touchstones that hide a deeper meaning of, of cosmic insignificance. So you got to get beyond all that. Um, and, and many of the stories in my Black Wings anthologies, um, I like to think. Um, so we've just had a slight internet outage, but you were t coming to the end of talking about Wilson and Wilson's half change of heart around Yeah, the, the funny thing about Wilson is like, pretty much to, to the end of his life, he felt Lovecraft was a, was a bad writer. And, and that's his prerogative, I suppose. But uh, uh, I actually got in touch with him, basically. And, uh, you know, he, he had written some encyclopedia article that was full of mistakes about Lovecraft. And I, I did write to him saying, uh, you know, you got some things wrong here. Uh, and he replied cordially enough. But uh, I still think he never he never came around to his to to, to, uh, to having a really positive view of Lovecraft. Although he also acknowledged that that initial reaction, the very hostile reaction to Lovecraft in The Strength of Dream, was basically because Lovecraft had put forth a, a, a worldview that Wilson found both contrary to his own and rather repulsive or repugnant. And again, that's that's his prerogative. I, I think I think he was a little off on, on what Lovecraft was really getting at, but again, um, he did acknowledge that that he kind of have overreacted uh, to, to, uh, to uh, some of Lovecraft's uh, philosophical writings. Um, one of the, the the real patterns I take from this and listening to you about it, this idea of a tradition filled with um, real conversations, um, large, strong personalities and worldviews, these kind of evolving traditions that come out of that, but also all the way through from um, essentially Lovecraft himself right through the present day, this vast sense of kind of ongoing generosity and engagement that, that, that feels like even even with many speed bumps and challenges and arguments along the way, the real source of this kind of incredible tradition. Yeah, I mean, we're talking about strong personalities. Um, I think you briefly mentioned Stephen King, uh, and let's talk about <laughs> some of these contemporary writers, uh, others other than the ones I've mentioned. Um you know, I, I think nobody expected horror fiction to become a best-selling phenomenon uh, as it did in the 70s and 80s, basically just just there. Um, um, and yet it happened, uh, I think, initially from... It got started basically with Rosemary's Baby uh, in 1967, and then the film, you know, by Polanski the year after that. Uh, and there was, uh, at that time, a very uh, interesting sort of um, interplay between... Um, Literature, literature and film at that time. Uh, in 1971, for the first time in literary history, the number one and number two best-selling novels of the year, in the U.S. anyway, were horror novels. Namely, William Peter Blatty's The Exorcist yes. and Thomas Tryon's The Other. And both are quite good novels. I mean, really good novels. Uh, popular, to be sure, but nevertheless, they're, they're, they're not just, you know, hokum. They're not just uh, pulp trash. They're, they're, they're respectable novels. Uh, and both were made into very successful films. Uh, and then, of course, Stephen King came along in 1974 with his first book. Um, King had certainly nurtured himself on Lovecraft. In fact, he, he claims that uh, as early as the, I can't remember when, but uh, 
probably in the early 60s, he had latched on to, to Lovecraft. Unfortunately, he, I think one of the first books he read was something called The Lurker at the Threshold, which actually is a novel that August Derleth had written almost entirely based upon a few tiny little scraps of Lovecraft's uh, uh, you know, notes or whatever. No matter. Um, uh, so then King went along and wrote uh, uh, this, this uh, longish short story called Jerusalem's Lot. Um, basically, it's you know, it's, it's a takeoff on the I think on the hotter the dark. Uh, I would say, um, not terribly original and not terribly good either. But uh, you know, it just shows uh, King's King's homage to Lovecraft and and throughout his writings, uh, there are all kinds of Lovecraftian references. And and we go to something like um, the Dark Half that actually has a lot of Lovecraftian elements in it. Um, uh, of course, the Dark Half was a no the novel that he wrote, basically fictionalizing how he was outed as the author of, of the Richard Bachman novels. Um, so it's basically, it's about, about a, a, a writer who has a kind of an evil, evil twin, you know, uh, and things like that. But, but the novel draws heavily upon the Dunwich horror in a, in very interesting ways. Uh, again, not pure pastiche at all. So, so, um, uh, King did, did, did some very interesting work in that regard. Peter Straub, I, I knew him slightly. I also know, know him well, but I, I knew him I knew him pretty well uh, to some degree. Uh, and he wrote a very interesting novel called um, Mr. X that is also explicitly Lovecraftian. Again, I, I don't think it's one of his better novels, but it's an, an interesting experiment. Again, drawing upon Lovecraft as a, as a character in some ways, and that, that itself is an interesting uh, development. We have a number of writers who have written uh, uh, whole novels or stories with Lovecraft as a character. <coughs> in fact, somebody named S.T. Joshi actually did that with a novel called The Assaults of Chaos. <laughs> it's out there if you want to read it. Um, it's not a very good novel, but uh, it's it's just just my 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 homage to Lovecraft as a, as as somebody who inspired me and 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 the other weird fiction writers. I actually have Lord Dunsany and and Arthur Mackin and and William O. Hodgson and, and other people like that as characters as well. So I hope that was uh, it, it's it's an amusement at, at a minimum. I hope, um, but that's you know and and it doesn't have to be horror novels. There's a woman named Jacqueline Baker. I think that's her name. Wrote a novel called Let me see. I think it's called The Silent Hours. Um, uh, basically uh, about you know Lovecraft at the very end of his life in, in, in 1936 37 uh, and and the young R.H. Barlow uh, who became his literary executor a really really poignant novel um, about the old the elder Lovecraft and of course Paul Lafarge who regrettably died just recently uh, American novelist he wrote a novel called Night Ocean that also is uh, about Lovecraft and Barlow um, interesting piece of work I, 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 I won't say it's a, a excellent piece of work but it's 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 interesting and provocative and and, and well worth reading um so it's interesting to see how lovecraft himself has become a kind of icon in popular culture and in mainstream culture uh today and and can inspire people to write whole novels about him that's um this has been a wonderful conversation and journey um thank you so much for your time again sir it's it's always just such a pleasure um and I think very much the same thing that, that I took from my first conversation, um, um, even beyond the subject matter and the vast knowledge and everything, I admire immensely the the energy and joy. I think last time you, you were describing yourself as a cheerful pessimist, 
and I've taken that with me and I, and, and I think that's wonderful. Um, ST, thank you so much for your time. Where, where can people find you when they want to connect with your work? Well, I have a, uh, I have a website, uh, stjoshi.org, um, that, that, you know, and I have a blog there. I don't write all that often, maybe once every two weeks. Uh, it'll give you more than, more than you care to know about what I've been doing lately. That's brilliant. We, we'll continue to talk just after the, the podcast stops, but for now, that is us. Thank you very much, sir. Sure thing. Tempest Bay wouldn't be possible without the amazing support of everyone involved, including you. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and consider leaving a review. This helps us out a lot. For more, please go to projecttempest.net for access to the videos, art, podcast, award-winning stories, and much more. That's projecttempest.net. See you next time in Tempest Bay.